0: Welcome to The Dirt on Organic Farming, a podcast from the Organic Agronomy Training Service. Our aim is to bring skeptical agronomists and crop consultants into the organic conversation by analyzing six common criticisms and openly discussing the sometimes messy promise of the organic opportunity. The podcast format combines expert interviews with real-world examples to get beyond us versus them and towards a more informed understanding of organic agriculture. I'm Nate Powell-Palm.
1: And I'm Mallory Krieger.
0: We're the hosts of The Dirt on Organic Farming.
2: You know, some perceptions that I've heard that organic production is just for small-scale vegetable producers who are selling at a farmer's market or just for a small portion of a field.
3: So there's skepticism around the long-term premiums within organic and the long-term potential for consumer demand growth with organic.
1: In this episode, Soft Markets, Organic Doesn't Scale. General Mills is a proud sponsor of Oats. As the largest producer of natural and organic packaged food in the U.S., the company is committed to supporting farmers in transitioning to organic and promoting continuous improvement of organic standards and practices. Learn more at GeneralMills.com. Oats is brought to you with funding support from Stonyfield. As the country's leading organic yogurt maker, Stonyfield takes care with everything it puts into its products and everything it keeps out. By saying no to toxic, persistent pesticides, artificial hormones, antibiotics, and GMOs, Stonyfield is saying yes to healthy food, healthy people, and a healthy planet for 38 years. Stonyfield is a certified B Corp. and is also helping to protect and preserve the next generation of farmers and families through programs like its Direct Milk Supply and Wolf's Neck Organic Training Program as well as Stony Fields, a nationwide multi-year initiative to help keep families free from toxic, persistent pesticides in parks and playing fields across the country.
0: Welcome to episode five. We've looked at tillage and weeds and the science behind organic agriculture and whether it has the potential to feed the world. But little of that matters if it doesn't scale. When I was first learning about farming and seeking out mentors, I remember bringing up the word organic to neighbors and other conventional farmers that I was hoping to learn from. And more than once, when I said the word organic, they pretty much replied that, oh, the reason I'm not organic is because I don't want to be sitting at a folding table selling grain by the pound at farmer's markets. One of the reasons that I ended up going into organic grain farming was because of the really strong and very consistent farmer-friendly markets that are out there. And by farmer-friendly, I mean that there is a culture of grain buyers really working with farmers to chase these markets, these new and nascent markets that that are out there. And organic supply has been just chronically lagging demand. There's always been more demand than there is supply and so buyers are eager to buy semi-load after semi-load of any organic grain that farmers can produce. My markets were mostly regional mills, um, some national brands as well, but they were ready to purchase hundreds, if not thousands of acres. Usually, I am maxed out on contracts, And there's more demand for what I can grow than what my acres can produce. So I was always a little surprised when folks just dismissed organic grain as something you only sell by the pound through your local CSA, something that's not really sold by the semi-load and really not scalable.
1: You know, this is a point of view that I, I interact with a lot. I've spent many years doing trainings for farmers who are considering transitioning to organic. And one farmer really sticks out in my mind when we think about this this idea that organic doesn't scale, that you can't do it in large acreage, had a field day for farmers who were considering transitioning. So the farmers who were there had not started transition yet. They were just trying to figure out what it is to be organic. And um, there was this one farmer who stayed at the back the whole time. His body language was arms crossed. He just really looked stressed. Looked like he didn't want to be there. So on one of our breaks, I went up, had a little one-on-one conversation with him to to find out what was going on and if there's anything I could do to help. Well, I learned that he farms about 2,000 acres and the majority of those acres, I want to say something like 1,600 acres of that 2,000 were owned by one landlord. And that landlord was requiring that he transition the farm to organic for him to keep the lease. And he was terrified. He felt it was an absolutely impossible task and that it wouldn't be possible to transition to organic on the scale of over a thousand acres.
0: So what it sounds like he might be concerned about is sort of twofold. One, um, how does he make that agronomic transition, get through, control weeds, ultimately make sure he has productive fields? But the second is, what are the markets like when he actually gets to transition? Are the markets going to be there to ultimately give that premium and buy up the crops that he's growing as certified organic? So to tackle this, we're going to look at it in two parts. The first angle we're going to cover is the – markets. In this episode, we're going to look at, are the markets there for large-scale organic operators um, to come in? And and if they're not there, what does it take to grow these markets? In the next episode, we'll be looking at what it takes from an agronomic perspective to get through transition. On the ground stories and, and interviews with folks who are actually talking about their experience and their expertise in getting through that transition period. So to kick us off, I want to introduce Ben Boll, an organic education specialist with Oregon TILF, which is an organic certifier, educator, and advocacy nonprofit. The idea that organics is only for small farms doesn't really square with what Ben is seeing in the field. I think organic
2: is, is sometimes interesting to me that it gets pigeonholed into small-scale veg production because organic is such a blanket term that can applies to all different cropping systems. And so I think that you know, in being around the country, doing some trainings or workshops for organic producers, I see organic production everywhere, you know, organic dairies to wheat. And I think the perceptions and the relevance of it are, I think, relative to the types of cropping systems in an area. And so if there's a lot of wheat country and there just happens to be one or two veg, organic vegetable producers in that area. It kind of gets pigeonholed that way. But, um, you know, in other parts of the country, you'll see large communities of organic producers doing grains or wheat production or in the dairy sector. And then for really thinking about larger scale and things, if you look at California, I mean, the diversity of organic agriculture in California and the large scale that it's at with um, vegetable production or all different specialty crops and fruits and nuts and all of those sorts of things.
1: Ben brings up a good point. You know, when when people think of organic, they oftentimes think of the farms that they encounter in person, like at the farmer's market or through a CSA. But organic is has a really huge presence in the grocery store. And when you walk through the grocery store aisles and you look particularly in the refrigerator section and you see how much butter and cheese and milk are all labeled organic, how many eggs are labeled organic, those are animal products that are fed with, you know, grain through the organic supply chain.
0: I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the most fun things about being an organic farmer is being able to walk grocery store shelves and try to do a little internal accounting about how many acres does any one product represent? What are those products that are really pulling a lot of organic grain? So I think Ben brings up a great point that organics is really diverse. And when we're thinking about all the different products on the shelf, there is eggs and milk, and those are all pulling a lot of organic grains. But the scalability question is that by the very fact organics is at these major retailers, it has to be a pretty efficient, pretty big supply chain to meet the demand of all of those different stores.
1: Yeah, a, a lot of times I hear from from people who are a little skeptical about organics uh, with concerns that it can't be done at large scale, like you know, conventional scale industrial farms, they're, they're pointing to average acre sizes that are published through USDA's, you know, Agricultural Research Service data, Ag Census, et cetera. A couple of things to keep in mind about those numbers. Organic uh, is often concentrated in geographic regions where the farms are smaller as a whole. So the average farm size in Vermont is a completely different number than the average farm size in Montana, but in that Northeast and up in the dairy country in the North central part of the United States, farms just generally are smaller. And so these organic farms are not markedly smaller than what their conventional counterparts in their geographic region are. Another thing I want to kind of point out is Ben mentioned farmer's market. Well, I I farmed as a farmer's market vendor for about five years and Many of the farms that are certified organic that I encountered in the years that I was doing that are run by really young people. They're just starting out. They're trying to get into the market. They're getting their foothold in there and the three years experience so they can get that FSA farm purchase loan. And so right now the organic community is fairly young. And so that kind of skews the acres smaller. So that all of this is to say organics absolutely is done at scale. The numbers right now make it look like it's smaller because of who's doing it and where they're doing it, but that says nothing about the feasibility at scale somewhere like the Midwest or the Northern great Plain.
0: And Ben also pointed out that the factors which drive conventional farms to get so big, namely to expand and consolidate and, to scale just to be profitable, those are just not as relevant to organic farms.
2: Sort of around that question of scaling up, I've also heard producers talking about the organic premiums as a way that allows them to fit in a comfortable space of scale, and so that they don't necessarily have to be the largest um, operation in the county to be able to be economically viable. And so they're able to stay at a scale that Works for their family and maybe includes um, a son or daughter coming back home or something like that, and they find that being in a more medium size is actually economic, maybe medium, I don't know, quote unquote, is uh, economically viable for them and not forcing them to completely scale up because, in part, there are those increased labor because of weed control, and more time out on the tractors and stuff, but with those increased premiums, maybe they can find a nice balance.
1: The thing that about organics that is. Just so exciting to me personally is the fact that farmers can find that balance. They are more profitable and it lets them, as they scale up to larger scales, they're able to bring in the next generation so much easier than on those tight margins in conventional farming that we have seen over the past like 20 years. The increased profitability of organics also allows, like, you know, smaller farms to be more financially viable and that leads to more farmers on the land, you know, instead of just one farming family trying to manage five, 6,000 acres just to make it pencil, you know, we're seeing a couple hundred acres supporting a farm family. That means there's like, you know, say 500 acres per farm family, that's 10 farm families who could be working on farms and and living that farm dream. But a real, you know, sort of,
0: cultural meeting point in my community are the the local coffee shops in which all the farmers grab their usually pretty bad cup of coffee just to talk about the weather and talk about grain prices. And um, and one thing that I would really challenge all farmers to do is get to the point where we're talking about net dollars per acre rather than just gross bushels per acre. Like how profitable are we? Not just how many bushels are we producing for free, basically. Um, And so when we're looking at This like a job, when you go organic, you just don't have to be working as hard and getting as big in order to be a farmer and to have a viable business. You're gonna be able to work a level-headed, sustainable amount. And you're gonna be able to also have neighbors who are doing the same thing. And I think that's a really exciting point for us to move in that direction, to be making a good living, but to not have to just run ourselves ragged trying to do it because we have to get so big.
1: Got a question for you, Nate. You say the organic farmers don't have to work as hard. Um, What about all that paperwork? You know, (laughs) in our our previous conversations, we kind of navigated a little of that lifestyle. It
0: that work manifests itself in other ways. You're going to have to do other things to hold on to those premiums, like organic certification, where you're doing a lot more record keeping. Um, But again, I look at some of the best run organic farms are the farms who have taken on one of their kids to be their chief record keepers. And ultimately, these things generating more jobs because of that additional premium and revenue available to the farm. But one point of commonality that that I think Ben said he's seen on or in the organic industry is even that in areas and regions where organics has been less common, like the South or other places with really high intensity, high input agriculture, um, a, a trend is becoming pretty clear across the board in America.
2: So in terms of where we see organic trending, I just see a broad increase. And so this to me kind of goes to this you know, big umbrella of what is under organic. I think that there are conversations of smaller scale producers that are getting certified organic that weren't certified organic in the past, that maybe were already leaning towards those um, types of systems, but they find, they decide to get certified organic because they see a market there. There's definitely a market pull all across the spectrum. I think the, you know, we see a big increase in the demand, um, the consumer demand for organic products that they just continue to rise. And so there's a real opportunity for producers there. And um, it's in my work with the Natural Resource Conservation Service, I see more and more states reaching out and asking for help because they're experiencing organic producers coming into their offices for the first times. And so they're seeing a growth of organic in their states, especially, you know, some states that maybe had a uh, were underrepresented in certain parts of the country in the past in terms of organic, or those little pockets of organic were somewhat hidden, not as apparent as others. Seems to me there's lots of indicators of increased growth in organic and then slowly more and more support, um, infrastructure support, technical assistance um, for organic producers hopefully trending that way.
1: So Ben, he he sees the organic industry growing, but here here's what I'm thinking about. In the last episode, we talked with Joe Miranda from OTA about how organics comprises about 6% of the organic food purchases in the United States. But one thing that we didn't say in that episode is that organic only makes up about 1% of the food produced. So agricultural product leaving the land, it's only about 1%. So what that's telling me is twofold. One, organic farms are more profitable because they're selling their product for more. So they're getting more money, more of that dollar share. But the other thing it's telling me is that there is a gap in, in how much we are producing organically domestically versus how much we're importing. To, um, to, to fill domestic demand. And import numbers for organics are still pretty high for cash crops like corn and soy. All the signs are pointing to there being a lot of potential for domestic grain production to take over some of that import demand. But there does seem to be a lag. If farmers decide to transition to organic at scale, so we're talking like large conventional operation transitioning to organic can the market absorb
0: their product? That's a really good point and a good question. I think the one thing to consider is that organics is a much younger industry than conventional. And so all of the infrastructure that the elevator systems, the transport system, logistics, all of that is just less mature in organics than in conventional. So I think it can be intimidating and in, in a lot of ways overwhelming for farmers to enter this unfamiliar market Um because they're worried that there's just not the same amount of infrastructural support um, as in conventional. But the two things that really, two numbers that I really sit with when I'm thinking about the future potential for expanding organic acres are the import numbers for organic corn and organic soybeans. So I wanted to dive into those two numbers. as two of our staple crops that most farmers in sort of the more, the Corn Belt region and really everywhere east of the mississippi as two of those crops that farmers grow a lot and want to keep growing i wanted to figure out what is in those numbers of imports and how can we address them so luckily i uh found someone who spends all of his time analyzing organic markets to get a better understanding of what it looks like today and where are things headed ryan corey is the director of economics at mercaris which provides comprehensive marketing information to the organic sector from prices to trade data and uh, even acreage yields.
3: With that number, and on both of these, we've seen an approval over the past five or six years. Uh, and this is really a virtue of the fact that we do continue to see acreage expand. Uh, If you look at corn, if you look somewhere around the 15, 16 marketing year, I think we imported somewhere around 50 to 55% of our organic corn. And over the 19, 20 marketing year, that number shrank down to about 25%. So that share has fallen by half. If you look at soybeans, it's much more nuanced. And the reason for that is there has been a trend within the industry that we don't import whole soybeans nearly as much as we used to. What we do is we import soybean meal in pretty substantial quantities. What I like to do is I like to take that soybean meal number, kind of convert it to a whole bean equivalent, right? Like how many beans did you have to crush to come up with this volume of meal? So if you took that whole bean number, that equivalency number, and you looked at that as a share of total supply with U.S. production, you know, kind of that same comparison, if you looked at 15, 16, we imported just a little bit more than 80% of our organic soybeans. And that number's come down for sure, but not nearly like corn. And with that over 1920, we saw that number sit somewhere around 70 to 75 percent. So still a huge portion of the vast majority of our soybean beans are sourced in the form of imports. and a lot of those imports are in the form of soybean yield.
0: The difference in the growth in corn and soybean sectors um, I think is really telling about what it will take to have organic scale in the US.
3: So the majority of demand for organic soybeans in the United States is in the form of livestock feed demand. And to produce that, you're producing soybean oil, so you're crushing. And the byproduct of that crush is oil. The market for organic soybean oil in the United States is fairly tepid. There's not a lot of consumer demand. And then there's really a few reasons for the lack of consumer demand. One being, if you are the kind of consumer who is health conscious and is purchasing organic goods for that reason... You generally tend to look at labels for oils that are not soy. You generally have a preference for things like sunflower and or canola. Canola is another one that's fairly common. But as a result, so what you see is organic soybean oil, generally a lot of it gets dumped into the conventional market. Some of it gets used for food, a little gets used for feed, but it just doesn't carry much of an organic premium, which means that premium is not getting bid back pressure. And it's not getting bid back into the bean. So historically, the profitability of soy has struggled a little bit because of that paradigm. Look at what we saw in the United States for organic soybean acres over this past year. We estimate that we harvested somewhere around four hundred and nineteen thousand acres of organic soybeans, or organic corn, rather. I'm sorry, soybeans. We harvested somewhere around two hundred and twenty-eight thousand. So somewhere around half. If you take that two hundred and twenty. And you think of the fact that we're essentially importing two-thirds of our needs. So you would need to triple those acres. I have yet to find an organic farmer who I would say, okay, triple your organic soybean acres because there's consumer demand for them here in the United States. There aren't really any farmers who are willing or able to take up that proposition because of those challenges.
1: So given that domestic soy production is really struggling to get a foothold, it seems like the reliance on soybean as a rotation crop might be a limit limitation to the growth of organic acres.
0: I think that's a really good point, and and I think one other thing I'd like everyone to consider is again that infrastructure question. I think that organic soybeans are a money maker. There, you can make a good amount of money. It's not going to be as exciting as your corn dollars um, in organics, but it's going to be something that's pretty consistent and ultimately a nice rotation crop. But I think one thing that to Ryan's point, is hindered is the consistent, ready-to-go buyers of soybean buying at the same scale and style. So with their elevators distributed the same way, the ease of getting rid of your crop is going to be a little bit different in organics. So I would push that this, this import number is a really exciting opportunity to expand domestic organic acres. But I think a point that Ryan makes, which is I think, really worthy of our consideration, is that we shouldn't be just trying to replicate the conventional model and replace every conventional acre of soybeans with an organic acre of soybeans, but rather think about how do we develop an industry that plays to organic strengths.
3: If you just get hung up on that number of how many soybeans we're importing, and it is a drastic number, uh, it, it leaves you wanting to go after soybean imports in ways that I find that aren't productive. But if you think about why it's happening, not necessarily so much what's happening, but the why, you can start to kind of come up with some creative solutions that are actually more beneficial in the long run. you know it's not about trying to build a supply chain or a, a network around the organic industry that is akin to what you have in conventional because that's clearly not where the industry needs to go to be healthy long you need to start thinking long-term in terms of demand and the supply network that fits organic rotations and fits organic production in the United States. And that that's really the way that, in my opinion, that you look at solving some of these these questions we're facing now in terms of imports and acres and production in the United States.
1: Yeah. Ryan makes a good point. In a lot of ways, organic is trying to mirror the conventional industry. Um, one of those ways that I'm seeing is that much of the organic corn and soy production that's raised domestically is destined for that animal feed and ration market.
0: Super good point. I think that there's a lot to consider about the potential of the ration. Maybe that'll be our next book. Um, Because the animal ration um, for, say, dairy and poultry, that's a huge draw of organic grain and, and a huge market for organic acres. So I think that there's a lot of potential to discuss how do we diversify what goes into that ration. Rations don't need to just be corn and soy. Um, there's a lot of interesting, really soil friendly, somewhat easier to grow legumes out there, um, like yellow peas, for an example off the top of my head, that could be substituted into these rations and are a little bit more friendly to the overall rotation on our organic farm.
1: All right. So what does that look like? If I'm a farmer who's looking to get into organics and deciding what I should grow, what should I be considering if not just the supply and demand curves out there? How do I put together a good rotation that is responsive to the market?
0: Man, that is, that's a great question. And um, well, Ryan had some thoughts on it.
3: One thing that's really important mm-hmm. and something you may take just a little bit for granted coming from the conventional sector is there are fewer entities out there to who which you can market your grain if you don't have a contract already established, right? Like So if, so if you're coming from the conventional sector, say you're a corn soy operator, you're pretty used to, you may have some of it already forward marketed, but you expect to put a fair amount of it into your bin and sell it over the next year or so as you need to make cash flow. That happens pretty often in the, orga- the conventional sector. That is far less common in the conventional sector, and it's or the organic sector, getting my terms confused. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One being, you know, there are fewer entities out there to whom you can sell. You know, for every 100 conventional, 100 is an exaggeration, but I'd say 25 conventional elevators, you might find one organic. So you've got fewer people out there that you work with. So make sure you look at who is around you and see who you can develop relationships with for signing contracts. And a lot of those elevators prefer to work off of forward contracts. Very little is done in spot. Uh, you, you see more of it once you start to get to you know, late summer or late spring, summer, but especially around harvest and winter, primarily forward contracts. So I would say as somebody who is working in conventional and thinking about transitioning into some into organic. Look at who's around you and who you can put together buying networks with. You've got to make sure you have a consumer for what you're going to grow before you grow. it. Lock that in. The second thing that I would say is, you know, and in this way, it also, it kind of depends on where you are. You know, if you're in the Northwest versus the U.S. Corn Belt versus up in the Northeast, or, you know, we've seen actually some pretty substantial expansion down to like the Southwest down in Texas and those types of places. Uh, Your crop rotation is really going to be based on, you know, that first factor what can you market and then to you know what really works well for region
0: I'm really ready to print my t-shirts that have a big old USDA organic logo on the front and an I Heart organic agronomist on the back because I feel like again I'm hearing this theme that we need these advice givers we need to be able to help organic farmers find buyers and figure out what to grow and that's a lot for one farmer and so we've got an entire conventional system right now that makes that really easy because ultimately we're dealing with very few commodities and they're traded in a lot of ways. So that advice giver to say, you know, I know of a market for yellow peas or sorghum or these other alfalfa and I found a buyer and I'm able to help you sell those so that that farmer can really focus on what's best for the soil, not just what can he figure out to sell in the minimal amount of time that he has to do his marketing.
1: So um, you know, I'm I'm thinking about what we've just heard from Ben and Ryan and it it really sounds like that there's not a hard limit on farm size from a markets perspective in organics, that you could you could have a multiple thousand acre organic farm and markets exist out there for you. But the toughest economic problem that organic farmers are facing is transition. It's becoming an organic farmer and getting through that 36 months. You're bound to use all of the organic practices, but you're not getting rewarded with the premium until you've passed that 36-month period and you've got your organic certificate in hand. That's a really daunting prospect. And um, well, we're going to flip roles here, Nate, and uh, I'm going to ask you. So I want to hear from a farmer did you talk to any I farmers? I knew this
0: was going to catch up with me. I knew when I pestered you about only wanting to hear from farmers, it would catch up with me. But um, yeah, yeah, I did. And I think, you know, from my perspective as a farmer, um, the transition period is a tough sell. It's, a, it's one of the hardest things to one, wrap our brain around, but two, to just make work financially. So I wanted to talk to a farmer who has made it to the other side in like a really big way, has gone through a lot of transitions and is experiencing real success um, with his organic farm. So I reached out to Aaron Butler, who farms in North Central Illinois, about 60 miles straight west of Chicago. And he is a veteran in the organic industry. Since he transitioned his farm in 1997, he has grown a variety of crops, but mainly rotates corn, soybeans, and oats. And um, Aaron has a pretty long perspective on the economics of transition. You have to view it as an investment
4: in your future because the economics of transition are usually pretty bleak. We we have a couple of markets around here for non-GMO beans which offer us a, a couple dollars premium per bushel, but most of the time during transition it's an economic bloodbath. I mean, you really have to view it as an investment in your future because it's It's most of the time, it's a pretty unprofitable deal, especially if you get into farms like we did a couple of these new ones we rented a few years ago where the fertility is horrible. You you just can't look at it in terms of one year at a time, because if you do that, you'll get discouraged and just quit right away. You have to look at it and and you got to look at it more than just three years, too. I mean, you
0: got to look sometimes you've got to look at these farms that are run down as a 10 year project. Without a doubt, this is not easy. But since coming out on the other side of that three-year period, time and again, going through that transition, Aaron has seen real returns on his investment. My,
4: my financial books are, are, work, are done by a company called Farm Business Farm Management here in Illinois. And um, one of the neat things about, about their service is they compare your financials to everybody else in the system. And right now, they don't have enough organic farmers, so they've got me lumped in there with all the conventional guys. And it's a pretty interesting comparison at the end of the year. Typically, in terms of total dollars spent per acre, I'm actually pretty close to the conventional guys, but I spend way less on the things you would expect. You know, my seed is cheaper. I don't spend any money on herbicide. I don't spend any money on insecticide, fungicide, you know, all that stuff is big zeros. But I spend a lot more on equipment and labor. So it's a trade off there that, you know, I've got, I got twice as much equipment as my neighbor across the road who farms just as much as me because of running all the cultivators and rotary hose and everything all summer and spreading all the fertility stuff. So in terms of dollars spent per acre, it's actually pretty close. But, you know, the last few years, the price difference between conventional and organic has been pretty substantial. So we've been able to show a, a much higher profit per acre than conventional farms.
1: It would be great to see what those economics actually look like for a transitioning farmer. It would,
0: wouldn't it? Will Glazik laid that out for me. Will is a fifth generation farmer on Cow Creek Farm in Paxton, Illinois. He farms organically both with his family as well as on his own operation. Will dives into some specifics and just so our listeners can track along, he refers to the first year of organic transition as T1 and the second year as T2. So if we kind of look at some numbers here, typically, you
5: know, I like following soybeans, Conventional soybeans would be ideal to start transition off of. So our T1 crop will be cereal rye, following soybeans. A lot of times we can get 40 bushel rye. Then I will direct market that to my neighbors for cover crops. We're looking at like a $400 gross minus maybe $100 in machinery. Cost is gonna be about $15 an acre. So really we're looking at like 285 net an acre on that minus personal expenses. Then we'll put in our our legume mix into the growing rye. That's gonna cost about 50 bucks an acre to plant. And then maybe let's just say another $50 an acre to maintain. So now you're down another $100 plus whatever land rent you would have on that and that's gonna be your T2. Then you'll work it up and then you go to organic corn. A lot of the times following that really nice legume stand, we're not gonna put on any manure. We'll have some more cover crop expenses, but I try to keep it pretty cheap. So typically I try to bank the, the first two years expenses out of that cereal rye crop. And if if there's a lot of conventional farmers in the area using cereal rye, you can probably get more than $10 uh, a bushel for it. Anyways, that sets us up for a really nice organic corn crop. Most of the time we can raise in the neighborhood of 150 bushel organic corn. There's some farmers in the area on a little bit better soil uh, that have raised 200 bushel corn. Right now, organic prices are a little subdued but right now, we're able to get seven bucks for it, so then you're looking at a little over a thousand dollars an acre gross. We've got between seed corn and weed control, got about another three hundred and fifty dollars an acre in it, so now you're looking around seven hundred net, which more than pays for that year off as long as you can make it through.
1: Well, wow. Will has really given a lot of detailed thought to how he economically manages transition. And I would encourage all of our listeners to do the same. Um, but my takeaway from from hearing a lot of farmers talk about transition is that the economics aren't necessarily ideal, but knowing that there's profitability on the other side of that 36-month transition, once you've got that organic certificate in hand, that's, that's got to be helpful in getting you through.
0: Couldn't agree more. And I think also just to tack on to that, because there's such a discrepancy between the demand for organics and the respective supply, I've seen more and more companies start to explore programs where they offer cash incentives to farmers to support them through the transition time.
3: You know, starting off talking about things like wheat, barley, we've seen a lot of demand growth for those. And a lot of demand growth has manifested in the form of. You know, large operators who are really putting a serious eye towards organic and organic contracting, and setting up organic contracting networks. I mean, things similar to what we've seen General Mills do over the past several years, to what Anheuser did, I believe, was it last year, last last spring, when they put together their large organic program and set up a lot of organic, wheat and barley production up in the northwest. Uh, there, there has been a substantial amount of that growth, and and those. That growth has really taken the form of, you know, pretty generous grower contracts that help growers get established and get off the ground. And whenever you have someone who's coming in and willing to buy, you know, essentially a fixed amount of your operation at a fixed price for a fixed period of time, as a farmer, that's some pretty great guaranteed revenue. That's better guaranteed revenue than most farmers ever see. And that helps you kind of get in and figure out how you're going to produce and work out the kinks and maybe figure out what to do with some of your other rotational grains or rotational crops, whatever they may be, whether it's just you rent it out as, you know, grazing pasture whenever you're not growing on it or whatever it may be.
1: Wow. So we're having more and more companies trying to support farmers through transition by guaranteeing purchases to kind of shore up the demand for transitional products.
0: So the reason these companies are investing in organics is ultimately because they see major growth in the demand for organic products. Ryan pointed out that demand is really so essential for growing the organic market.
3: You know, we talk so much about imports and acres and production and growth, but we don't take enough time to talk about demand. If you look back at what happened to the conventional sector, um, if you look at basically like 2005 to 2000, what was that, 15, 2016, where conventional prices kept going up and up and up, and everybody thought corn would stay at $6 forever. It didn't. And it didn't because we took our eye off the ball with respect to demand. Biofuel stopped growing. China ended some of its policies that had led to a whole lot of demand growth. Demand slowed down. And it slowed down abruptly, and it slowed down much quicker than acreage growth did. And that caused conventional to do what they did. With organic, as important as it is to address some of these, you know, uh, logistic issues and to address some of these import issues, continuing to grow consumer demand is the single most important thing for the organic sector. You know, consumers may demand a lot of the value that organic can offer, uh, but they may not know that. And they may not see that value being translated or be educated on that value. And so making sure that consumers understand that organic is a great way and ensuring that organic continues to remain a great way to get those additional values with your products is an extremely crucial thing for the industry over the next five to 10 years. Because as much as I I believe in the industry, and I think it has plenty of room to grow, I'm, like I said, it's my economist skeptic hat. if we don't continue to focus on growing consumer demand, we will quickly trip over ourselves and we could quickly see ourselves in a situation where prices start to fall because it can happen in any market and it does.
0: I think something also to consider there and referencing what Ryan just said, that it's not just how much we demand, but it's also what we demand. And so when we're thinking about growing demand, if we're demanding crops and products that make sense for organic farmers, it's not a struggle but actually a really good fit for their rotations to grow these crops, then we're gonna be sticking it to the conventional paradigm and making a much more viable marketplace for organic farmers to thrive.
3: You made the comment that you generally end the the conversations with Heidi. Grow more of these acres domestically and you know that's that's one of those things that you know coming back to the paradigm of soybean imports you know to me it's it's not a number a matter of how do you grow these acres domestically it's how do you demand domestic acres. it's not a matter of growing them domestically We're rethinking the demand paradigm to where we demand them domestically.
1: and that
3: to me seems to be the the bigger more pertinent question you know if you could just move those corn and soybean acres into the United States by turning them into, say, sorghum or something else, you're talking at nearly 700,000 acres of organic crops that could be brought domestic just like that without trying to expand corn and soy. And I think maybe that's a better attack to take whenever you look at this situation than just how do we grow this corn and soy domestically.
1: We really need to rethink how we're setting up markets for organic crops domestically. We need to think about what has an end market here and also grows well and also fits well in a rotation. So it's like these three points that really need to come together to create a perfect demand and supply um, relationship. And so I would say we really need to challenge ourselves to mold the demand side to better fit the agronomics of crops, such as inputs into feed rations
0: absolutely and to put a fine point on it here are the three takeaways organic marketing is different than conventional marketing and so it's going to be important to understand what crops you can raise and raise profitably markets are there organics is growing quickly but it's not going to be the exact same infrastructure you're not going to sell necessarily to the local elevator it's going to be more relationship marketing um, number two markets are strong for the right crop so when we're deciding which crops producers need to grow They have to be responsive to the local markets. Don't just blindly grow crops and hope there's a market at the end. Um, Search out those markets. Search out what is is needed in the local economy, the local uh, marketing ecosystem. And lastly, organics is big business. You can grow and sell at scale. We're not talking about selling only by the five-pound bag of wheat. There's uh, a lot of demand, and it's really well-fit to current-scale operations. And at the end of the day, Ryan Corey emphasizes that scalability isn't a deal breaker for farmers looking to go organic.
3: I think if we can solve that problem of long-term sustainability by addressing some of these things we talked about here, uh, you you will see people move in and scalability won't be an issue because there are clearly multiple examples of operations out there who are successfully farming organic on the multi-thousand acre uh, type of scale. So clearly you can do it. It's just a matter of making the economic case and giving our farmers the opportunity to have the long-term sustainability to reach that kind of scale.
1: That was episode five of The Dirt on Organic Farming a new podcast by the Organic Agronomy Training Service. OATS provides organic grain production training to agronomists, advisors, and crop consultants so that farmers will have better access to reliable science-based advice for their unique farm operation. Special thanks to Ryan Corey, Ben Boll, Aaron Butler, and Will Glazik. This episode was produced by Michaela Elias. For more information, go to www.organicagronomy.org. OATS is brought to you with funding support from Clif Bar. Clif Bar's journey to use organic ingredients started in 2003. We've learned along the journey that organic can be a catalyst for good. It is key to creating a healthier, more just, and sustainable food system for all of us. Organic farming is good for people and the planet. We've also learned that organic farming is innovative and can play a critical role in feeding a growing world. In order to do that, Organic has to continue to improve. That's why we are the number one private funder of organic research in the US and fund projects like OATS. We are proud to be working along with all of you to ensure that Organic is here to stay for good and for generations to come. OATS is brought to you with funding support from King Arthur Baking Company, who has been sharing the joy of baking since 1790. A certified B Corp, headquartered in Vermont, King Arthur is the ultimate baking resource, providing the highest quality ingredients for the most delicious baked goods. As a 100% employee-owned baking company, we believe in the power of baking to make a difference for our employee owners, the larger baking community, and the planet. We strive to be a force for good in all that we do, From cultivating a workplace that embraces differences and prioritizes trust to teaching children across the country how to bake bread from scratch to partnering with farmers and suppliers who share our vision for a greener planet. OATS is a programmatically independent consortium that is fiscally sponsored by the Organic Trade Association. OTA serves as an anchor funder for OATS through its industry-invested Grow Organic Research Promotion and Education Program. Grow Organic's Technical Assistance Program area seeks to meet goals of scalability, regional and production system diversity and technical assistance for organic and transitioning farmers nationwide. Top donors to the Grow Organic Technical Assistance Program area help make oats possible. Thank you to General Mills, Cliff Bar, Stonyfield, King Arthur Baking Company and Organic Valley. I'm Mallory Krieger.
0: And I'm Nate Palapalm.
1: Till next time, thanks for listening.